cross, Lord. It was your blood that cleanses us, purifies us. Forgiven. Lord, just have your way this evening as we open up your word. Speak to us, teach us, refine us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. David's humbled confession. 2 Samuel 12. If you remember, if you were with us last time, we saw David's murderous lust in chapter 11. Lust after Bathsheba, resulting in the killing of her husband, Uriah. Today, we will see David's humbled confession in chapter 12. We will see that God is going to do a work in this man's life to refine his heart, to change his heart, to change a mindset that settled in on him that uh, should not have been. He was among God's purpose and will, heart after God, but he took his eyes off of God's purpose for his life, what he was supposed to be in his will. He walked away from what God's will for his life at that time when they went to battle. Joab and the men took off. He stayed behind. Tonight we will see in chapter 12 a change of that heart because God is going to reveal his heart to him. David is going to be staring at himself in the mirror, as they say, which will bring what we will see very clearly, a repentant heart and then a restored heart. But punishment will be given to him for his, his disobedience and not walking away from the will of, of, will of God. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, just the first few verses here, let's take the first four, we see God using a man, Nathan, a prophet, a man who heard clearly from the Lord to be used by God to go and speak to David, who David respected and was willing to receive from him. And it says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb which he had bought and nourished and grew up together with him and with his children it ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his flock 
and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. The first observation is, is there's nothing new under the sun. We see here in this time, he had a little ewe or lamb, a little lamb, and he treated it like a pet. He treated it like it was a family member. I thought that was maybe something new that we see today. People take their pets and treat them like their, their kids or their, like their spouse or something at times. And they eat from their phone fine china. They, <laughs> they, they eat their same food. They're, they're sleeping in their same beds. And, they're, and it's like, okay, that must be a modern thing. No, we see it happening right here in this example. Nothing new. We also see that many times, even in this culture, when they had an unexpected guest, that culture was to have hospitality, and you were to prepare a meal and to prepare and take care of this unexpected visitor. You were supposed to bring them in and protect them and provide for them until they are moving on their way. But this rich man was very stingy, very tight with his money. Tight with what his, his, uh, his things. He knew he had to do certain things, but he f found out someone else could do it for him. In this case, he was going to take someone else's, even though he had plenty. He had plenty of many flocks and herds. He did, but this was a, his heart was very um, stingy, very, very greedy, wasn't willing to give. God had set this custom up. He set this culture up to be, so that people would not become so... Um, greedy with their things that they wouldn't share with others especially when you have plenty but no they, they turn around and says sure i have to do it because i have to save face what would people think if i didn't take care of it this is what we're supposed to do but i'm not going to sacrifice for this stranger this guy who's showing up on my doorstep i'll just take something from someone else to provide for it nothing new under the sun people do that today but we see here that God sent Nathan to David, and David's sin displeased the Lord because David didn't listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in his life or his conscience. Now God sent someone else to speak to David, clearly, of what God's feeling about the situation is. What his thoughts were about the situation. His displeasure of what David chose to do and to willfully sin. God mercifully kept speaking to David even when David didn't listen. That's how much God loved David. Yet no one shouldn't presume God would speak forever to an unrepentant sinner though. God said in Genesis 6.3, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. And when we hear those words, we must be on alert because when we hear or sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we must respond to it immediately because it may not always be there to convict you anymore. You might be hardened where you could so used to tossing away in the thoughts and the ideas of, okay, this is sin, I shouldn't touch it, I shouldn't touch it. And we can fall to those moments. But God says you should not be so 
distracted and so determined in your flesh like David was, that you will grieve the Holy Spirit and, 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 and push away the Holy Spirit when the, your conscience, and God is trying to get your conscience to, to stir up, and your spirit within you to say, no, don't touch it. And David fell to this. He wasn't listening to the Spirit. He wasn't listening to the conviction of his conscience and of his heart about the situation at hand. But that didn't stop God from still speaking to David. And he uses Nathan to give a story of two men in one city with wisdom and courage. Nathan came to the king of, of Israel to tell him what is wrong in his life. That he needs to be, he's going to be convicted, he's going to be addressed, he's going to be as a king who normally a king would t turn around and just take a person's head off if you would speak in any negative way to them. But we see here that Nathan comes with just a common story about the days of a lamb that in those days had pets just like this. And another man took another man's pet. It wasn't the dog, it wasn't the cat, it was a little lamb in this case. And God used Nathan. Why? Because Nathan and, and King David had a relationship. If you remember back in 2 Samuel 7, God used Nathan in David's life to bring a message of great blessing upon David. So the last kind of interaction with Nathan was a very positive one, getting a blessing. Oh, yes, Nathan. Oh, what are you doing here? This is great to see you. Come on in. This is awesome. How have you been? Because David remembers the blessing that God used Nathan to be the messenger of. David knew this. Nathan wasn't against him. He wasn't a negative guy, a critic of him, but a friend, one who God used to bring a blessing to him. He was very receptive to the message of whatever Nathan wanted to say. And you can almost see David kind of perking up. I can't wait to hear what you have for me. Because you said, the Lord sent me. Sent you. Nathan says, the Lord sent me, David. That's why I'm here. And as he tells the story, the sin that Nathan describes to King David of this story between the rich man and the poor man and the rich man taking away from the poor man is theft. This rich man who had everything stole from this poor man. A personal pet. And in this story, he's, just tur he's telling David, he's about to pull the, 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 the punchline here. David, what you did is exactly what the rich man did to the poor man. David, you stole something from Uriah. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, it says that in marriage, a husband has authority over the body of his wife and vice versa. Obviously, David did not have this authority over the body of Bathsheba. He stole from Uriah. And it's called adultery, sexual immorality as a theft taking something that does not belong to us. 
The same principle we see in Leviticus 18 describes the sin of uncovering the nakedness of those other than your spouse. The concept, the context, the idea is that the nakedness of others doesn't belong to us. And it is a theft if we take it. And that, I believe, can be applied to lusting after those you don't know, you do know, it doesn't matter, but even to the point of pornography. Then we see a response here as David is being condemned. Why? Because he's now going to come to this punchline of the story of how is David going to respond to this story. And we see this in verses 5 and 6. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives. Now he's using the Lord's power and authority in this whole thing. It's not, as, as a king, I'm, I'm so angry. No, no. He says, as the Lord lives. The man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Wow, David. This emotional response of anger that you have from a story that Nathan's telling tells your response of many things. Nathan did not ask David for a legal decision on the case. Just told him the story. He didn't ask for a legal, what do you, legally, what do you think, King? How should I deal with this? David naturally assumed the story was true. David immediately passed a sentence on a guilty man. Of Nathan's story here. Many times we find people's responses to certain sins of other people many times shows that we often are trying to hide our own guilt, guilty consciences by passing judgment on someone else because that is what you find in your own life. And not only did he quickly draw a conclusion that this was a real story, and the fact that he started now brings the Lord, as the Lord lives, I, I, this man should surely die. Leave legally, according to the Israel law there at the time, taking a man's lamb and, and, and having it sacrificed to feed another person was not a death penalty. But David went to the degree of surely die. The over, over, overkill on this response. This wasn't a capital crime. But David's sense of righteous indignation was so affected by his own guilt. He commanded a death sentence for a man. On a hypothetical case. <laughs> See, David had to condemn his own sin before he could find forgiveness. 
We often try to find refuge in excusing or minimizing or shifting or blame or deflecting the blame of our own sin. We simply do not condemn sin in ourselves, but we certainly will condemn someone else we see that, that same sin in someone else's life. But David's emotional response, I said, the Lord lives with such a passionate anger. He called God to witness in what he's about to say. But he does know, David does know the law, right? Because he says, he shall restore fourfold before the lamb. So David rightly knew the penalty for the rich man for taking that lamb, even though death was not, they were supposed that rich man would have had to be restoring to the poor man fourfold for taking his lamb. That, that is true in regards to the, to the law we see in Exodus 22.1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So David knew the words of the, of the Bible. He knew what the, 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 the Bible says. And many people know what the Bible says. And many non-believers know what the Bible says. But David is so far away from the actual author of the Bible. He knew what the Bible said, but he had no, that he was distant from the, the author. And many times non-believers are weak Christians in, in, in carnality. They know the Bible, but they're so far away from the author of the Bible. That they don't apply it properly and rightly. See, at the very end of this verse, verse 6, we see because he had no pity, it says the idea is that the man should have had pity on his neighbor and did not. Well, David, you should have had pity on Uriah and Bathsheba's father and grandfather and all the relationships. And you did not. This is where the connection is going to all come in alignment here when this punchline comes because now Nathan here in verse 7 is going to confront David with this application of the story to make the point. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. This is not my opinion, David. This is not what I'm, I'm telling you. This is what God sent me to see you and what the Lord told me to tell you. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I, God, delivered you from the hand of Israel. I, God, gave your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little... If that wasn't enough, that's another kind of my paraphrasing. But the words here says, and if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. 
David, you're losing, you losing out. You lost out on more blessings because of this sin. Why have you despised the commandments of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Very clear message that God gave to Nathan to tell King David, you sin greatly. So Nathan gives the parable with a very, uh, very clear simplicity. And that must have just absolutely shocked David right there in his step, in his moment of sitting there. It must have shocked him into seeing his sin for what it is. Now, some, many times people can be shocked, but not frightened. See, sometimes you try to get across, and you're just like, okay, how can, I, how, can, how can I put the fear of God in this man, this woman, so they finally will re- just finally come to the Lord and walk away from their sin, repent and re- walk away. How do I, fire and brimstone, it's coming down, man. You're going to be torched, you're going to hell, it's going to burn for, in, in hell. You can try to frighten someone, but many times, you can't frighten men into repentance. You might bring them to a point of remorse, deep sadness that they got caught, deep sadness that this, what they do is, you know, it, is, 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 has a conscience, a sense of wrong. But just because they're remorse, just because they're sad, just because they're grieving, because they lost something because of their sin, does not mean that will lead them to repentance and surrender their life to Christ. I have witnessed that more times than I want to count in the lives of men and women. See, God brings about and reveals things. In a way that to bring to the heart of the matter so that we would come to a point of repentance. The Spirit of God does that work. He brings a personal application by His Word that brings a depth of conviction of sin that they are in. And when the soul has been convicted to the core of their sin in their lives, and they respond to that conviction by the movement of the Spirit of God, it will bring a personal salvation to the person. It wasn't enough for David just to confess that he was a sinner in a general sense. We're all sinners. And people will actually say it. Yeah, I sin. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I've lied. I've done this. I've done that. Yeah, yeah. Who hasn't? But it's not compared. To, I didn't murder anybody. Well, David couldn't say that because he did. 
You know, so it, it, in a general sense, it was going to be enough just to confess that you're a sinner because we know you're a sinner. He had to confess his sin at this very point. He had to acknowledge the sin with Bathsheba and the killing of her husband, Uriah, to the core of understanding of that conviction of what he did. The confession of our sin needs to be specific. It costs nothing to say, I'm not everything I should be. I understand that, but I'm not as bad as other people. Or I ought to, to be, I'm, I, I, I know I need to be a better Christian. I know I'm not you know, perfect like you know, the, you know, the, all these other holy people. You know. No, no, you have to get to a point where you are literally personalizing and saying, yes, that is sin. And be convicted to the, to the core to come to the point of realizing you need to turn around and walk away from it. It's called repentance. See, God told Nathan to remind him, I anointed you, I delivered you, I gave you, I give you the house of Israel and Judah. I also gave you, I could have given you so much more. You had everything going for you, David, and this is how you're going to respond to my love and my blessings upon your life and showing mercy and grace in your life and keeping your life. This is how you're going to respond to me? This is how you're going to choose to live? Nathan was a very faithful messenger as a prophet, was he not? <laughs> this, is, this is not an easy message to tell a king. But God had to get to the core of David, of his sin, and say, you, you, you are so ingratitude. There's no thankful and ingratitude at all in your life in this response, David. I gave this all to you, David. And so much more I could have given to you, David. But you sought out sin instead of me. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord, David? And to do evil in my sight. Why did you do it, David? We see again, David, many times in these moments of of transformation and change in his life through bad mistakes or decisions or you know, you know, persecution, tribulations, we find he writes a psalm. Psalm 19.8. David said, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the, the eyes. <laughs> the, the Lord is pure. And he is lightening the eyes. God, David realizes how, how much he knew who God is and, and what his God he was following and trusting and who was active in his life in such a great way. And I turn around and I despise and I, the, the commandment of the Lord and what he called him. This is my will, the commandment, the will of God. And I just literally went against it. I did evil in his sight. And it was very specific. It was like, okay, I didn't go to battle. Okay, I screwed up. I should have gone to battle. 
No, David, that's not the point. The point is, yes, you weren't where you're to be. And when you're not in the will of God and you're not doing what I called you to do, you're open to evil things. Slippery slope there, David. And because the way God used Nathan and Nathan delivered that simplicity and direct message, it wasn't a wishy-washy, it wasn't gray, it wasn't, he was very specific. There was no room for David to shift blame or to justify or, or do anything in his life to get away from it. You killed Uriah. You took his wife. You stole, you murdered. You have a murderous, lustful heart, David, and it has to change. You are the man, David. What's the consequences? Because God's going to punish his, his son. And look at in verse 10. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Punishment has come because of his sin. What is that punishment? God promised to David that from that day forward, David would know violence and bloodshed among his own family members. He will witness death of his own family members as a punishment. Yes, David demanded that there should be a fourfold restitution for the man in Nathan's practice. He needs to give it back. That is, that's, what the, that's what the law says in Exodus. And God executed exactly that fourfold restitution to Uriah. From the four of David's sons, Bathsheba's child, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, all will die. Adonijah, Absalom, Ammon, and Bathsheba's child. Why? Because you have despised me. You've gone against me. 2 Samuel 12, 9, God said that David despised the commandment of the Lord. Here, Nathan ex explained that in doing this, David despised God himself. I mean, personally despised. That's what was happening, David. When you were making that decision to sleep with Bathsheba and to orchestrate and, and put out a plan of action to kill Uriah, you were actually despising and going against God himself. It's a reminder for all of us. We cannot despise God's commandments, God's ways, God's laws, God's word, and, and not think it's not going to displease God. You know, many times seem to believe there's no effect or little effect on one's relationship with God when you live a life of secret sin or even open sin because you don't think it's a big deal. 
But if you put in perspective of what we see in the word today, when we despise or we do not and we reject God's commandments, it means despising God himself. And we must see how God sees sin. We can't have fellowship with God and despise him at the same time. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 says it clearly. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If you've noticed, Bathsheba's name has not been named at all here. In the scriptures, Bathsheba's name is not even, even noted here. He just brings to clear light to David, you took, you stole another man's wife. This is just this is this is an individual that was in someone else's wife. You cannot, you can't not take another man's wife. This is Uriah, the Hittite. And it must have just really did a gut punch for David to know because he's going to block it out of his mind. And because he, he, he went down this path and he, he just one thing to another made it worse and worse and worse. And then to have come back and to remind him of a great man that was one of his loyal men and faithful men to, to, work, to come alongside David to, you know. And David, out of his murderous lust, just lost complete objectivity. It must have been a gut punch to be reminded. Hearing Uriah the Hittite, Uriah the Hittite, Uriah the Hittite. Every single time it's coming back. I killed this man. I killed this man. I killed this man. I took his wife. I took his wife. I took it. That's a heavy, heavy load. So what happens? God works with a broken, repentive man. He says here in verse 11, thus says the Lord, this is Nathan speaking to him, thus says the Lord, behold, I will rise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel before the son. Punishment gets even more thicker here. You think you can do things in secretly? I'm going to make it well known. God warned David that because he troubled another man's house, God will allow trouble to come upon his David's house. From within his house is going to divide. You took another man's wife? Other men are going to take your wives. You slept with her, they're going to sleep with your wives. And you see this over and over. It was fulfilled in 2 Samuel. We will see in chapter 16, verses 21 and 22, when this is going to be fulfilled. Because why? Because Absalom will abuse his father's concubines on the housetop. The same housetop, the same terrace that he was looking over and viewing Bathsheba is the same place where now Absalom will do against his father's concubines. 
and this judgment, God says, David will reap what he has sown with interest. How did David respond to this direct message from God? We see in verse 13 here, he starts off by saying, So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He acknowledged everything he has done was totally against the Lord. That's where it starts with repentance. I have sinned against my Lord. David's confession is a very good example for everybody. He placed the blame squarely on his own shoulders. He took full responsibility. He did not minimize his offense or his offense. David realized that he especially sinned against God. I have sinned against the Lord. David's humbled confession. Your your humbled confession doesn't need to be long. It just needs to be meaningful and direct and to the point of where it should be, and that is, I have sinned against the Lord. Very few words. But it shows a broken spirit. No excuses, no hiding, no concealment of sin, no justification, no looking for a loophole. No, can, no, no, I, I, I'm a human. I'm just human. I'm a man. I'm just weakness. This is, this is just, you know, it's, it's hard to be a man. He openly acknowledged his guilt without denying the truth that he fully takes responsibility. This really shows that he wasn't just being emotional and curling up in some ball and weeping because he got caught moment here. The conviction of the Spirit of God, God convict this man to his core, working directly on his heart to bring him to this point of brokenness. And Nathan's confrontation was just that last piece of the work. Because between when he did it all and to the point Nathan showed up, he had a heavy, heavy conviction and condemnation upon this man's life. No question. David spoke of himself. I'm the sinner. I'm the one who went against God. He knew right then, I have to deal with this sin. It's his sin. Personal responsibility for his sin. He wasn't softening this. He wasn't saying, oh, it was just a, it was a mistake. It's just an error I messed up. It was just an indiscretion. It was just a, a problem. It, wasn't, it didn't mean anything. No, no, he came, I sinned. I acknowledge the evilness and the wickedness.
and all the, the consequences. And first of all, I went against the Lord. Yes, you went against Uriah in Bathsheba and against Ahithophel and against your wives, your children. Yes, all these people are always affected. Your sin never affects just you. But everyone around you. But most of all, the greatest part of that sin was because he went against the Lord. That's the greatest of all. Against a great God. That's why I acknowledge I have sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 51, he, he speaks of this, this level of, of expression of repentance from this situation. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, and you, have, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. To may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. And then we come down in verse 16 and 7, that was 1 through 4, and then down to 16 and 17. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a, burnt, a broken spirit and a, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. He understood God wasn't looking for him to sacrifice and do all these other things and try to do a lot of great things for God and everything else to compensate for this sin. God, that's not what God's looking for. He's not looking for you to work, work, work and sacrifice your life to go give, give, give money and, and service and work, work, work to try to overcome. No, he's asking you and I and, and David understood this. God is looking for a broken a broken life, a, a, a heart, a broken Broken spirit and a broken and contrary heart. A changed heart. And David showed it. David's awareness of sin, desire for cleansing, the recognizing of God's righteous judgment, understanding what God wants at our each are very clear here in Psalm 51. And so what happens as we continue in verse 13 of chapter 12 here, And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. Oh, what? What a beautiful words that must have been so soothing to hear from the mouth of Nathan of what the Lord just spoke on behalf of the Lord. He said, Nathan said to David, The Lord has also has put away your sin and you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. The Lord 
has put away your sin, David. Why is that significant? Because remember, the, the, the punishment of adultery and stuff that he did is death. He murdered someone. He was to die. And God showed mercy. God's forgiveness was immediate. It wasn't something he had to go pay back and, and, and pay, you know, go to you know, church ten times and do this and repent and do all these religious things to, have, to receive God's forgiveness. No, it was immediate because his heart was broken. It was a, it was a broken spirit, a broken and contrary heart. His heart of a repentance, true repentance. And, and when you have true repentance, there's immediate forgiveness. God didn't demand time of probation. He was forgiven and you shall not die. He would be spared from the penalty of the adultery commanded upon the law of Moses. And David believed the words of the prophet. You are the man. Therefore, he could also believe these words when he heard the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. But he also was reminded that there is a bigger impact than just, yes, you've repented. Yes, you've been forgiven. But understand there is consequences and impact on those around you from that sin still, David. And it's usually affecting those who are the most closest to you, the ones you love the most. David didn't push this away and say, I'm the king, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. As a ruler, as a king... But what happened is, is he was in a position of authority as the king of Israel. And because he's an example, and yes, he's in a fishbowl, and everyone sees his life and watching his life, what he does impacts greater than just his immediate. God made it clear, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme me and my people. And so there's consequences and there's a difference in judgment for the sin and the judgment by sin. God forgave David's sin, but he would not shield him from the every consequence of the sin he committed. David had to face the consequences of his sin, beginning with the death of the child born of Bathsheba. And you have to hold on to this because even through this decision of how God was going to mercifully deal with David shows God didn't only want to heal David of the guilt of his sin because the guilt was so heavy in his life. He also wanted to heal David from the presence of this sin because nowhere we see after this point. Do we see David ever committing adultery again because God uses these chastisements, these punishments to drive such impurities out from the life of a man, of in this case, the life of David? 
It's a refining moment for David. And then we see in verse 15 through 23, then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground so that the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. <laughs> they feared for their life. He thought they were gonna, David was going to lose it or something. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he, request, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. There's quite a bit in this little uh, part of the verses here. As soon as Nathan was out of the picture, hey, the Lord struck the child immediately. It wasn't a long time after that. We don't know exactly how long, but it sounded like immediate because he left and the child dead, according to the language here. And many, it's hard for many to accept this, this consequence, but sadly, often the innocent suffers actually because of the sin of the, of the guilty has resulted in consequences of a severe, a severe way. And since the sickness came immediately after the words of Nathan the prophet, it was received as from the hand of God. It was clearly this child got sick because of the consequences that Nathan said from the Lord. This was a huge, tragic moment for David and Bathsheba. It was the biggest tragedy was really on the two of them, not the child. The child was young. The child was very young. The young son suffered maybe a few days, but we must trust that God's comfort was extended to that child in the midst of that suffering because the child did nothing wrong. And at the end of his suffering, knowing the child God was going to take his life, he went into eternal glory because he was young. Though the child died, the chastisement was really upon David and Bathsheba, not on the child. 
And so that brings up a very interesting principle and and, an important illustration here. Even when sin is forgiven, a price must be paid. God does not simply pass over and excuse your sin. Yes, it is forgiven, but a price is paid on one's life. Often an innocent party has to pay the price for, for, you know, after the forgiveness, but someone else is paying the price because of the consequences that come upon that man. Even though Uriah was dead, David was legally married to Bathsheba at this point, but the biblical writers still referred to Bathsheba as Uriah's wife. So when the child was conceived, it was really Uriah's child, not David's. So God made it very clear to him, this is not your child. And just because Uriah's death and and you married her doesn't make everything all right here, David. And so David pleaded and asked for the grace of God to come upon the situation and pleaded and fasted and prayed. And he did these fasting and praying not because there's some kind of magical little tools or somehow you're coercing God to change his mind. That's not why we fast and pray and, 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 and do what David was doing on the ground and not eating or anything. He was just crying out and asking for God's grace and mercy upon the situation. He didn't do it because these are tools to try to get David or God to change his mind. We don't do that. That's not the reason why we do that. It is a reflection of his heart. Pleading with God. Look how David handled this. He was pleading with God for the child. Not to restore his life, restore things and make things change and, and like it never happened. No, no. He pleaded with the life for the, the life of the child. And so he earnestly seeked for God's mercy for the child. So to God, the child would be healed and not be in pain or whatever it may be, the situation. He was, he was crying out, understanding this is God's judgment. It's been announced. It is now present. It's right in front of him. He shouldn't receive it passively or fatalistically. He could have been two extremes. Okay, it's the way it is. God called it. This it is. What can I do about it? Or the complete opposite and say, I'm going to kill myself over this whole situation and become fatalistic around this situation. No, he didn't go to extremes in either one of those. He did exactly as a mature, believe it or not, a mature godly man he responded appropriately we cried out to god in repentance and asked for his grace and mercy upon the situation and then allowed the consequences of the decision and what god wants to do in his hands he just he said i'm going to everything was about speaking with god nothing for himself fasting not because he's trying to change God's mind, but he's really, he's placing and, and simply requesting for God's will to be done in the situation. 
He was just radically submitting to God. Surrendering to God's power and God's will for the situation. And then after his child died, he did not sit there and still curl up in a ball and be very fatalistic and say, I'm going to just die here of starvation and kill myself, whatever. No, no. He got up and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped God. David rose from the ground, washed and anointed himself. Notice that. Changed his clothes. Went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went down to his house and when he requested this, I'm going to eat now because I haven't been eating. They're like, what are you doing here? We're fasting, going all kinds of crazy. We thought you were going to turn on us. We were afraid we we're going to say anything. You picked up on it, perceived what was going on. And this is your like, a, it's just a complete flip. He said, well, wait a minute. Continuing to fasting and pray is not going to bring my son back. I'm going to go to him. Because David knew where as a child where he was going to be. And perhaps in that young child's life, it was going to be the presence of the Lord. He understood that. He understood the truth. And he says, I'm going to go to him. I will see him again. Now I must live my life here. And I'm going to live it by first going to the house of the Lord and worship him. I'm not going to sit there and say, I'm going to go walk away from the God. I'm going to walk away from God's place, God's people, God's everything. I'm going to walk away from on everything about God because I can't believe he took my child. No, no, he was a mature understanding of who God is and how he works and how he is will in people's lives and how he is in control. He didn't turn on God. He worshipped God. He chose to worship and honor God in the time of trial or crisis. That shows a demonstration of spiritual maturity and spiritual confidence in who God is. When you're through going through trials and crisis and loss and death, and you are able to come to God and worship Him and praise Him and to honor Him and glorify Him, it shows your spiritual maturity and confidence in Him. And the fact that he, God, David was very confident that his son would meet, meet him in heaven. He knew where he, was go- he went. Which is an interesting conversation around what happened to my child. Is My child was very young. Wasn't even at the age of accountability time frame. He was not even a teenager. He didn't have puberty. He was a very young child. What, what happened to my child? Well, David made it very clear, the scripture is very, very clear, that perhaps the children who pass from this world to the next go into he- will go right into heaven. 1 Corinthians 7.14 gives up like an additional promise of assurance of that children of believers, children of believers are saved. At least until they come to the age of personal accountability, which may differ, I believe, at each of each child. I think it's around that puberty time frame where they, uh, there's a change into adulthood and there's a life of understanding there. But I see only in the scripture where there's a, that assurance of children of believers are saved. It doesn't, it doesn't have that similar promise for children of parents who are not Christians. 
not believers. It doesn't have that same promise as clear in the scripture. But if the children is, comes from a non-Christian parents and are saved and go to heaven, even some of them, it's important to understand. It's not because they earned it or deserve it. It's because of the grace of God, because of the innocence they have that are, are as a young child. Because we're all born sinners, guilty. We're sons and daughters of the, of, of the guilt of, of, of Adam and Eve. But because young children are innocent and deserved heaven, because they were born into a family of people who were turned away from God, didn't follow God, God's mercy and grace, I believe, will bring them to heaven as well. Because of God's rich mercy has been extended to them. But as, a, but as parents, I would, I would move into the direction of a surety of the scripture and make sure you are born again believers. So that your young children, your kids, have that assurance that we see clearly in the scripture. Then David, verse 24 and 25, Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan, the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah. Because of the Lord. So we see here David comforting Bathsheba. He lost her, her only son, it appears. This is the first time in the, now the Bible writer is actually calling this woman Bathsheba here now. Because everything's changed now. Except for them, you know, clearly that things have changed. She's, there's been forgiveness. There's been a change because of that repentance. We now see that God has taken David's life and the life that he's married with Bathsheba and is now going to move them forward. They're not going to dwell in the past now. God doesn't dwell in the past. He's moving things forward here. Calling her Bathsheba, his wife. Not Uriah's wife. It's, everything's changed here because of repentance. Change of heart. And he blesses them with another son, Solomon, who God is going to use in a great way for the nation of Israel. He'll be the uh, king of Israel. They called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Why? Because we see God doing something new now in their lives. This, these lives have been changed. God didn't ask David to leave Bathsheba. Okay, you, you've been caught, you've, you've repented, you've been forgiven, and you've been losing your son, but now you're going to lose your wife and you've got to let the wife go back to, to leave and go find you know, another husband. No, no, God didn't do that. You've already made a commitment of marriage to this woman. You're going to now, that's your wife, you're going to honor God in that marriage. You can't turn around and leave that wife and go back, uh, you know, leave that man and go back into your old other husband. 
Yes, Uriah's dead, but if, let's take a situation today. You, you left your wife, you shouldn't have you know, uh, left her, and you divorced her, and you get married, and then you come to a, a repentance, you come to a saving grace, you came to a change. You don't now drop your second wife, then go back to your first wife. That's not what God is calling you to do. That's not what you do. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, As the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. Now go forward. Don't dwell in the past. Move forward now. Do it God's way going forward. And But what beautiful grace God showed Bathsheba and David by giving him another son. Great forgiveness, tenderness of God. He did not hold this grudge against David and Bathsheba. The days of blessing and fruitfulness were not over for David. God said, I, yeah, okay, I forgave you that situation, but I'm going to make you just barren and I'm going to make you suffer the rest of your life in the situation. No, there was true repentance, a change of heart. And we're going to call his name Solomon. Remarkably, it is his, this son, the son born out of marriage that started in adultery, now becomes the heir of David's throne that God is going to appoint him to. God forgives repentant sinners. Don't forget that. God forgives repentant sinners. Many times people may not forgive other people. And many times people don't really believe that God has forgiven them. They refuse to really believe that we are forgiven. When God says that you've been forgiven because you've repented. You must remember God forgives repentant sinners. Now, when Nathan got involved here and, and called his name Jedediah, it means loved of the Lord. God loves this son, David, Bathsheba. God loves this son. It was God's way of comforting them and assuring them that he loves them and he is blessing them with a son from, their, from, from, from the two of them and that marriage. Look what happens now. It's now there's restoration. Repentance, a sinner repentance is forgiven. Yes, there's consequences, but through God's grace and mercy, yes, it could be far greater, far worse, I assure you. But then what happens is then there's restoration and there's blessings that can, can, can come back into your life that God can restore and restore you and bless you moving forward. And look here in this victory because it shows that for him, because he's king, it not only affected just his life, but affected this changed life now, affects the nation of Israel. Look what happened in verse 26 through 28. Now Joab fought against Rabah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rahab and I have taken the city's water supply. 
Because when they took the water supply, you really started, you start controlling the, the situation, the battlefield situation, because now they're going to die of thirst if they don't. They're gonna, it's only a matter of time. They become weak and you can take the city. So now, therefore, great, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it. Lest I take this city and it be called after my name. So Joab, being a great commander... Uh, <laughs> head of the army, said, David, I know all the things are going on in your life was happening here, but you really need to have this victory. You really need, people really need to be calling your name out in this victory, not my name. You've got to get back to where the will of God is, and you've got to get back into the battle here, and you've got to be leading, because that's what God's called you to do. You can't be out there on the fringes here. But this, this war, this fight that Joab was doing started in chapter 10 of 2 Samuel. And he was about to complete and to finally defeat the Emirates. He's had a hard time fighting this war. It wasn't coming to victory for the longest time. And here's Joab kind of prodding David. David, you got to return to the battle. You got to get you got to get all the credit to you. I'll get all the credit if you don't keep if you don't come and finish this war. It's finally coming. Why? Cuz Joab saw finally we're going to get a victory over this city. Well, the reason why they're starting to get victory is because their leaders finally repented and God has dealt with them and now he's going to restore them and bring them back to the rightful place he's supposed to do and that is to be king and to lead them to victory. Joab was struggling for more than a year to conquer this city, the Rabah. And the only reason why he's now he's getting victory is because David got things right with God. So many times people forget when you're in sin, the, the consequences are felt and people are going, what is, why is thing not, things going right? Because something may not be right with the leader. Right with the husband, right with the wife. Something's not right. And there's spiritual reasonings behind the lack of victory and, and, and overcoming things in one's life. So David heeded a good, wise counsel, and he showed up. Verse 29, so David gathered all the people together and went to Ribah, fought against it, and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head it weigh, its weight was a talent of gold, that's very heavy, with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work, slavery, slave bravery, um, and saws and iron and picks and iron and axes, and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people return to Jerusalem. So the final part or final phase of David's restoration here is he went back to do what he was supposed to do all along, leading Israel out to battle instead of remaining in Jerusalem. And when David came there, he got victory. God made sure he had victory. His sin did not condemn him to a life of failure and defeat. 
Yes, he was punished, chastisement for David's sin, but it did not mean that his life was ruined to the rest of his life. It didn't, his, his failures in that aspect of his life did not cause him to lose the crown that God had for him. If David had refused Nathan, you're, you're just a prophet, Nathan. Who do you think you are talking to me and I'm not listening to you? you, you it would have been a completely different story. They probably wouldn't have won the war. And it would have been a whole different consequence. Far greater destruction. No, but David responded with confession and repentance, humbleness, brokenness. And there was still a crown for David's head, we see, with victory. Amazing, amazing truth. Father, we thank you and praise you for your grace and your mercy and your love for us, Lord. Thank you for your word this evening. May we hear, receive what the Spirit has had for us this evening. May it change hearts and minds of your people. Transform the minds, Lord, by the reading of your word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. God.